every sin you are tempted to commit traces back to one of these three. And if you want to gain victory over the temptations in your life, you have got to start by dealing with the root and not the fruit. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of his six-part series titled Power Over Temptation. We're continuing a look at the three temptations of Jesus Christ found in Matthew chapter four. In today's program, Tom will begin to examine the third and final temptation by Satan, the root temptation that lies in the lust of the eyes. And as we read in Mark chapter four, Satan employs this root temptation by presenting the world's kingdoms, wealth and power to Jesus for his personal gain, but outside the timing of God's perfect will. And as you'll discover, Jesus once again rebuffs and overcomes that temptation from Satan. The question that remains is this, how does this temptation present itself in your own life today? And how does Jesus call you to resist the outcomes of this root temptation? Keep that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn back with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look at the third temptation of Jesus Christ. You probably remember from school at some point hearing about Christopher Marlowe. It was in 1604 that Christopher Marlowe published his famous play, The Tragic History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faust. It was the first time that the already famous legend of Faust was put into print. Since that time, of course, it's been developed and expanded by plays and poems, and in modern times, by films and lyrics. But whatever form it takes, the story is always of a tragic human figure who strikes a deal with the devil. And he will enjoy, as a result of that deal, many happy, successful years of life on earth. But in the end, he will have to surrender in exchange for that life of prosperity his soul to the devil as payment and spend eternity damned to hell. And the deal, of course, in whatever form the, the story is presented, it is always sealed in a document signed in Faust's own blood. As the story goes, Faust does enjoy a life filled with the best that this life can offer. But as he nears the end of life, as the time of the contract draws to a close, Faust begins to realize two things. One, the success and things that he sought and wanted have not brought him the permanent joy and happiness that he thought they would. And two, that he has made a tragic blunder, that in exchange for his eternal soul, he has damned his soul forever. In exchange for his prosperity, he has offered his soul for all time. You know, there's a lot familiar about that story. I think part of the reason it has been repeated in so many different ways, whether humorous or 
seriously is because Satan comes in one way or another to every one of us with the same siren song. The temptation to sell our souls for success. To sell our souls for power and for possessions. We shouldn't be surprised because that was one of the three recorded temptations of Jesus Christ. A couple of months ago, as you remember, we began our study of Mark, Mark's account of the temptation of Christ. Mark only devotes two verses to it. And so I decided at that point to take a, a sort of detour from Mark to examine in detail the three temptations that both Matthew and Luke record. Now, just by way of review, let me remind you that temptation takes this course. All sins ultimately spring from temptation. Secondly, all temptations spring from sinful lusts or cravings. This is for us, not for Christ now. And all sinful cravings ultimately spring from three root sinful cravings described in Scripture as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those three root temptations, those three root cravings of the soul, spring from three normal, God-given human desires. This is the level at which Jesus, this fourth level, is the level at which Jesus was tempted. Normal, God-given human desires. Jesus did not have within him the same sinful cravings that are within us that cry out to be satisfied, but he did have normal human desires just as we do. In one sense, Jesus' temptations were unique in that they took paths our temptations will never take. None of us have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread. None of us have ever been tempted to jump from the temple in Jerusalem and be rescued by the angels. None of us have tried by some act of obeisance to Satan to gain all the kingdoms of the world. But at the same time that Jesus' temptations were unique, they were also typical of the root temptations that you and I face. Tonight we want to examine the third temptation. The third temptation is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. As we have with each of the other two temptations, let's look first at the preparation. It's in verse 8. Matthew writes, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. Now, there's some debate with this temptation, as there was with the second one. Did the devil physically take Jesus to this mountain, or did he show him these things in some kind of a supernatural vision? Let me just mention that this is not a question of whether or not you believe the Bible. It's a matter of how to interpret what the Bible says. There are those who absolutely embrace the inerrancy of Scripture on both sides of this issue, and frankly, we can't be completely sure. Let me just give you the arguments that this was a vision. These are the arguments that are presented. No normal mountain is high enough to see all the world's kingdoms. Of course, the world's a globe, so you can't see everything in the world from a high mountain, they argue, so it must have been a vision. Luke adds that this all happened in a moment of time which in and of itself seems to imply something highly unusual and perhaps miraculous. And there are two other passages in which someone is taken to a high mountain and it occurred not in reality but in a vision. And that's in Ezekiel as well as 
in John, uh, John's Revelation, Revelation 21:10, those are the arguments presented for a vision. The arguments for a physical presence that Jesus and the devil actually went to a high mountain are that there's no point in going to a high mountain if it's a vision. Also, Luke uses the kingdoms of the inhabited earth, which would mean that he saw parts of the kingdoms of the Middle East within his physical vision, but the rest of it was simply audibly described. And that brings us to the third argument, and that is Satan showed him. The Greek word for show can mean either to show physically, to present before someone's eyes, or it can also mean to describe or explain. For example, in Matthew 16, it says Jesus began from that time to show, same word, his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Well, obviously, he wasn't showing them a movie. He wasn't showing them a a set of pictures. He was describing. He was presenting before their minds this reality. And so it isn't necessary, this word doesn't make it necessary, that Jesus physically sees every kingdom. The fourth argument is the language of Luke's account, when Luke describes this, seems to imply normal physical movement because he says, the devil led him up. The devil led him up. Every other time in the New Testament that verb is used, it speaks of physical movement from one place to another. As you can tell, I lean toward the physical presence of Jesus and the devil in a high mountain, but we can't be dogmatic. Many of those I respect would not believe that. If the devil did take Jesus physically into a high mountain, how did he do it? And I won't spend a lot of time here, but there are only two possibilities. Either they traveled the way people traveled in the first century, ordinary human transportation, feet, donkey, etc. This is how Jesus moved around for 33 years. Or the devil transported both himself and Jesus there in some miraculous fashion. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus did miraculously escape from his enemies on a couple of occasions, but there's nothing said that he was transported somewhere else. There is no record anywhere that like Philip was in Acts 8, Jesus simply was transported somewhere else. It is true that after his resurrection, in Luke 24, it says he vanished, that is, he was no longer visible, doesn't say he went somewhere else. John 20 says he passed into a locked room. So, The bottom line is, if Jesus is miraculously transported by Satan to the temple mount or to this high mountain, this would be the only time in Jesus' earthly life when that happened. Every, the rest of the time he walked, he rode some beast of burden. And likely, I think, that's what happens here. But whether this is occurring in a vision or physically, whether they got there miraculously or by walking, the devil took him to a very high mountain. There are a couple of choices for this. Could have been in the Judean wilderness. There's a 3,000-foot peak there in the Judean wilderness. It's less than 30 miles from the temple where they were in the second temptation, just a day or two's walk. It would have been somewhere out in this barren, desolate place. A second option is that it was Mount Nebo, where you remember Moses was taken to see the Promised Land. That's about 4,000 feet. It's less than 40 miles and just two days' walk from the temple. Another option is Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in all of Israel. It's up at the north of Israel, 9,200 feet above sea level. It's only about 140 miles or about six days' walk. 
So within the 40 days, could have been done. We just don't know. By the way, this is what Mount Hermon looks like. You see it there in the distance. This huge peak that overlooks all of the country and looks in a number of directions. But notice what Satan does with Jesus. It says, the devil showed him from that place all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now remember that Jesus in his entire earthly life has lived in a little village called Nazareth. No more than 500 people. He lived in Egypt, perhaps the huge city of Alexandria, for a short time as a child, but he would have been too young to remember that. He also, at the appointed feast time each year, as was commanded by the law, he would have gone down with other pilgrims from the age of 13. He would have made his way down to Jerusalem for the feasts, or up to Jerusalem, as they say in Israel. There he would have seen the glory of Israel, Jerusalem and its temple. But here the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Luke adds, in a moment of time. The devil takes Jesus to a high place, either literally or in a vision, and he turns him 360 degrees and lets him get some grasp of how far and wide the world is. And then beyond what physical eyes can see, Satan either describes or in a vision shows Jesus all the world's great empires. He shows him Egypt with its ancient history, its advanced civilization, its pharaohs and its pyramids. He shows him Rome with its great armies and its far-flung empire, its art and science, its roads and its cities. He shows him Greece with its already antique civilization, its scientific advances, its philosophers, its beautiful architecture, its refined culture. And in the same way, Satan gives Jesus a glimpse physically or descriptively of the rest of the inhabited earth. But Satan didn't show him everything. Notice the parts of the world's kingdoms Satan showed him. Their glory. Not the disgusting and the seedy. Not the crass and the vulgar. Not the backroom politics. Not the crime and corruption. But their glory. Satan showed Jesus all the things that made those first century civilizations and empires great. Not in a series or in a parade, but at the same moment of time. Alfred Edersheim writes, The world in all its glory, beauty, strength, majesty is unveiled. Its work, its might, its greatness, its art, its thought emerge into Jesus' clear view. That's the preparation. Jesus, in His human life, only exposed to one tiny little nation, only exposed for most of his human life, to a little city of fewer than 500 people, is shown in a moment of time the splendor of earth's civilizations. That brings us to the temptation. Verse 9 says, And he said to him, The devil says to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, notice there's a difference in this third temptation. Jesus here confronts a different issue because Satan does not say, if you are the Son of God, as he said in the other two. He assumes that to be true. 
John Broadus, in his commentary on Matthew, says, it's as if Satan is conceding that Jesus is Messiah and will found a kingdom, and he proposes to help him. He simply says to Jesus, all these things, that is, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory that you can see before you, I will give you. Satan is offering to give Jesus Christ possession of all the kingdoms of the world. Now, if you're a thinking person, you have to ask yourself, how could Satan make such an offer? Was it a legitimate offer? Well, Luke puts it this way in his account, in chapter 4, verse 6 of Luke. He says, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Is that true? Well, yes and no. The first part of this statement, it has been handed over to me, is partly true. It is true that God had permitted Satan to rule over the world system that stood opposed to him, but always, always under the tight control of God. So Satan can, in one sense, legitimately be called the ruler of this world, as he is in a number of places. The ruler of the system opposed to God. But it's not true that the created world has been handed over to Satan. Satan is not in charge of this created earth. Jesus Christ has been, is, and always will be. He made all of these things, and the writer of Hebrews tells us they exist, what? By His power, as does Colossians. Neither is it true that Satan controls world governments. To the, that, to the extent that he can give it to whomever he wishes. Daniel chapter 4 says the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. So how exactly can you reconcile what Satan offers Jesus with the rest of Scripture? Well, remember, it was Jesus himself who said this of Satan in John 8. He is a liar and the father of liars and lies. But while Satan does exaggerate what he is, his realm, what he is over, it was still true that Satan did have some control, some power, some influence over the world's great empires. And that's what he's offering Jesus Christ. But there's a catch. Matthew writes, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Literally, the Greek text says, if falling down, you will worship me. If falling down, you will worship me. Now, don't misunderstand. There is a great deal of debate about exactly what this means, and there are good people on both sides of the argument. As I have studied it, I really have to agree with William Hendrickson. And basically, he says this, Satan was not asking Jesus to forever renounce the true God and treat Satan as if he were God. Instead, he was simply asking Jesus to acknowledge his dominion. Just one quick bow, that's all it'll take. This is an acknowledgement of Satan's authority over the world. It is not a recognition of his divinity. Remember what Satan has just himself said to Jesus? What I have has been given to me. The question is, by whom? Obviously, there's somebody greater than Satan. He himself has just said that. Nor is it an acknowledgement of Satan's personal merit to be worshipped. As William Hendrickson puts it, 
All this wealth is offered by Satan to Christ, all for the price of just one genuflection, one bow, one moment's kneeling and recognizing his authority. So the ultimate temptation here is not to worship Satan. Bowing to Satan was only the means to a greater end. And the great end is contained in the statement, all these things I will give you. Or as Luke puts it, it shall all be yours. If Jesus will admit Satan's authority over these things, he can avoid all of the conflict and pain and suffering that it will cost him to wrest it away from Satan. And instead, it'll be given to him on a silver platter. It was right for Christ to have all the kingdoms of the world. The Father had promised that the Messiah would receive them, that his Son would receive them. In fact, turn back to Psalm 2. All the way back in Psalm 2, some thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ, this is what the Father had said of the Son. Jesus, speaking in verse 7, says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, that is, the Father said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God had promised Jesus that he would have all of these things. But the temptation was to get what God had already promised but not in God's way, not the way of suffering and death, and not in God's time, which was yet in the future. Instead, Satan's temptation was for Jesus to choose the time and for Jesus to choose the way, and it was the way Satan had laid out before him. John Calvin, writing on this passage, says, Christ had the same feelings with ourselves, but he had no irregular appetites. The kind of temptation here described was that Christ should seek in another matter than, manner than from God the inheritance which he was promised. If Jesus will do this, he can have these kingdoms as his possession and under his authority. So, with that understanding in mind, let's ask the question, what is the heart of this third temptation? It is the temptation to pursue personal prosperity, or we could say self-fulfillment. Personal prosperity. It includes the desire for both position, authority, and power, that is, the opportunity to rule, and it includes the desire for material possessions and wealth, that is, to own, to possess. This Third temptation springs in Christ from the God-given desire to work hard in the fulfillment of what he had been designed to do and to enjoy the fruit of that labor. And the same is true for us. But in us, not in Christ, there is a root sinful desire that takes that normal human desire and perverts it into a craving for personal prosperity. I don't just want what God has designed for me to have. I want more. First John 2.16 calls this the lust of the eyes, sinfully craving to have or possess what the eyes see. You know, for us, rarely does the craving to have power and authority and wealth come with the requirement to actually physically bow down before Satan. But in reality, whenever you and I are tempted to pursue these things contrary to God's Word, we are, in essence, worshiping some other god. 
It is idolatry. The craving to possess is nothing other than covetousness, and covetousness is idolatry. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and notice verse 5. As Paul is urging us to put on the new self, he says, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and he lists a number of things, and he ends with greed. Greed is simply the desire to have more. It's the insatiable desire to lay hands on more stuff, on material things. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series titled Power Over Temptation. Tom will have part six for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.